This podcast is brought to you by Western Reformed Seminary, the Reformed Seminary of the Great Pacific Northwest. Hear more at the conclusion of today's program. This is Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Uh, Why would you want to reinvent the wheel? What makes you think that your individual attempts to formulate Christian truth are superior to the products of the Christian centuries? Hello and welcome to Theology on the Go. I'm Jonathan Master, joined as always by my friend and co-host, James Dalzell. James, how are you today? doing well. Looking forward to our conversation with our guest today. Yeah, it's an unusual one because normally we have uh, engaged in these interviews around a book that's maybe come out or, or some particular topic. And in a sense, this is very topical and very timely. It's, it's related to uh, really the central focus of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, but it's not a book. It's actually an address that was delivered by our guest. Our guest today is Pastor David Strain, who is the senior minister at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. And the address he delivered was at uh, a, a recent conference for the Gospel Reformation Network. It was on the topic of confessional subscription. And just to, to set the stage a little bit, this podcast is done under the umbrella of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. And that's um, that's important. We don't often talk about that, but but one of the animating uh, ideas behind the alliance is that uh, confessional subscription matters, and that we're not simply evangelicals floating out there with whatever doctrinal commitments we might have come up with a week and a half ago, but rather we're, we're subs- we subscribe to uh, historic Reformed confessions, and so this is really at the heart of of the Alliance's mission. And so, um, David, thanks for, for joining us today so that we can just ask a little bit more about some of the, the, the ideas you discussed. It's a pleasure. Looking forward to it. So let me start by asking this. You, you said at the beginning of your address, and by the way, we'll provide a link for our listeners to, to watch this for themselves, but you say at the beginning of your address that there are an increasing number of Presbyterians, and we could expand that, I know, to other uh, denominations that are confessional in some respect, that an increasing number of Presbyterians regard the Westminster Standards as merely constitutional documents. Right. What's the problem with that? Why is that? Why is it problematic to approach the standards as merely constitutional documents? Well, the word merely is important there. They are constitutional documents, and that's vital, actually. I don't want to, I'd hate for anyone to think I was downplaying that important function. But our standards have become something of a dead letter if that's all they are. If they don't express the living theology and piety and practice of vibrant, healthy, reformed Christianity in any contemporary meaningful way. Um, What's happened in that case is that the Westminster Confession and Catechisms have become hoops to jump in order to be ordained or serve as an officer in a church. And then they can be shelved as largely irrelevant to the practice, the preaching and teaching, the catechesis and discipleship, the way that we frame and understand our 
our Christianity and our convictions. And, and that actually has ongoing implications, particularly for how we read the Bible. Um, if we don't want to be mere biblicists looking for proof texts, reinventing every theological wheel, every doctrinal wheel every time we come across something, um, uh, then we need to read the Bible with the church across two millennia. And the classical creeds and confessions of the Reformed churches are magnificent repositories of the church's wisdom. They allow us to access how um, the whole church across the ages has understood the teaching of Holy Scripture. And so in the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination of which I'm a part, we regard the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechisms as standard expositions of the sense in which we understand the Holy Scriptures. We don't want to be individualistic or biblicists. We want to read the, read the Bible with the church, and this helps us do that well. And it's not just a box we're checking off. It's it's right. it, this is our confession of faith. It's the confession right. we're making of what we believe. Right. I wonder if you could say something to maybe your own diagnosis of why uh, there might be a trend uh, in some corners to treat them again as merely constitutional or as an historical artifact. Uh, and you you give a few suggestions uh, in your talk. Uh, about why this um, kind of diminished view of the vitality of the standards um, has taken hold, uh, particularly with regard to their seeming modern irrelevance uh, or just, you know, not being well-equipped to handle the questions facing us now. Um, I wonder if you could just reiterate a couple of those things uh, for sure. our listeners. What are some sure. of the things confronting the church? And why would you say that the standards do, do actually equip us uh, to face those challenges. Yeah, I think that the challenge to vibrant, healthy confessionalism comes is compounded. It comes at multiple levels all at the same time. So there's there's a broader evangelical um, tradition that intersects. We are confessing evangelicals, after all, that intersects with with who we are. We have a great deal in common with our broader evangelical brothers and sisters. And, and so there's a stream, a wind of evangelicalism that blows through confessional churches that, that, that tends sometimes to, to find extra biblical documents almost of any kind to be uncomfortable things. And, and I think there's a, there's a creeping suspicion or an anxiety that, you know, here are these 17th century documents, how can they possibly help us do that well? How can they possibly speak to this generation when the, the issues of identity politics and so on are so complex um, and, and in many ways very new? How, how is it possible these ancient, you know, dusty old tomes can can really speak with a relevant voice, and and I think the answer to that is uh, give them a try. Um, <laughs> those of us those of us who have turned to our 
confessions and catechisms have found the, the work that the Westminster Divines did in particular to be extraordinarily prescient and clear, their commitment to concision and clarity and to articulating uh, theological truth in a way that has a certain timelessness to it that the church has affirmed across the ages means that actually again and again you have in short compass whether it's whether you're dealing with ethics or with doctrine uh, you you find resources that that's what I need to say and that's the way I need to say it um, and you don't fall off any ditches on the left hand or the right hand while you're doing it um, I've, I found the, the confession and catechisms actually to be marvelously relevant and coherent and clear. One of the points that, that you made in, in passing was that these, these were consensus documents and consensus documents made by men who were extraordinarily conversant in the Christian tradition. So in other words, these weren't peculiar projects from one sect or another, nor were they made by guys who had never really studied theology or were aware of what had been taught in the last 15 centuries. I mean, th these are, these are well-informed, well-educated giants who, who all agreed on these things. And so it, it's, it's not to be taken lightly. It almost makes one wonder if the rejection or the the idea that the confession the, the standards aren't relevant is really questioning whether christian doctrine is relevant uh certainly and we meet that all the time as pastors and teachers that there are just shoot straight cut to the chase tell me what to do leave the doctrine you know to the the theologues out there uh pastor just you know, tell me a few stories, move me, speak to my affections, and, and help me understand how to live. But And doctrine can't help me with that, and what a tragedy that is. Um, you know, our, our understanding of the Christian life arises um, in a context of understanding who God is and who we are and what the world is, and you can't, you can't get close to that without thinking theologically. Uh, to be a Christian is to be a theologian. And our confessions and catechisms help us be good and faithful theologians, um, rather than reinventing the wheel every time uh, we're faced with a new challenge. Um, and to your point, Jonathan, about their, the divines being conver conversant with the whole Christian tradition, that's so important because actually when you think about heresy and, and theological errors that crop up, though they take on um, new clothing, as it were, actually when you, when you peel back the layers, they're just fresh versions of something that's already been around once or twice or three or four times in the history of the church. And, and that's why our, our creeds and confessions that, that are rooted in the, the ancient tradition and the whole body of classical Christian doctrine um, help us so much because actually there's nothing new under the sun. And that newfangled idea that sounds so fascinating and so strange and so challenging 
very often, actually, again and again, turns out to be uh, the same old, same old in in different different dress. Um, and so the divines addressing Arminianism or Roman Catholicism or um, Anabaptist ideas or or mysticism or actually there's versions of every one of these things, um, Socinian ideas, all of those things are very much alive and well all around us. Um, and many of the challenges that confront the church, both from within and without the church, are addressed very helpfully uh, in our standards. One of the other issues that you raised had to do with um, the public nature of these to, to a watching world or, to, or to, to someone who's investigating what it is that we teach. I, I, I'm not currently pastoring a church, but in, in my role at the seminary, I've often thought, you know, if a student walked in and we said that we held to the Westminster standards, but then when he sat down in class, we taught him something different than that there would be a you know question about truth in advertising that that would have to be raised i mean th- there there is something to the fact that these are these are what we publicly state as our confession and to, to go against that seems peculiar at, at best and misleading i i would think at worst yeah for sure and that they are public documents actually really helps us it doesn't just hold us to um, a body of truth. It, it actually allows us to say, this is what we stand for, and we're not hiding anything. It's one of the marks of the cults, actually, isn't it? That um, there's they dangle the bait and hide the hook. But as Reformed Christians, we don't ever have to be manipulative. We don't ever want to... Um, uh, uh, dupe people into into joining our churches. We, we we can say we have public standards that summarize our convictions about what the Bible teaches, and they're out there for all to see and to scrutinize. And uh, we actually that that's not a challenge or a danger for us. That's a help to us in making known uh, the Word of God. We do that out in the open. Um, uh, with with clarity and humility, here's what we believe, and that's a very valuable thing, both for our witness as well as for our catechesis. I wonder if we can turn to a a part of your talk with regard to the matter of subscription. And I know for some of our listeners who aren't as familiar with the confessional tradition, and particularly the way in which uh, aspiring ministers or candidates for the office would subscribe to a set of standards, in your case, in the PCA, the Westminster Standards. Just you had some things to say about this uh, with regard to good faith subscription. Um, That's a that's kind of technical sort of technical terminology in the Presbyterian world. Uh, Good faith subscription. I wonder if you could say what is good faith subscription? What 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 are we supposed to understand uh, when someone subscribes to the standards, and then as a follow-up to that, and you may have gone to this naturally, um, if if a candidate is going to take an exception to the standards, um, how should that be done, um, and and what should be expected uh, of a person taking exceptions? Yeah. These are great questions. So there are in in at least in the Presbyterian tradition, there have been really three main approaches to subscribing to the standards. The, the Westminster Confession and the larger and shorter catechisms. 
strict subscription will allow some differences with the standards, but will prohibit any public teaching of any kind ever of any difference to the standards. So it's a very, that's a very tight approach to, to subscription. System subscription takes the view that the system of doctrine that um, is at the heart of the Reformed faith is something less than the whole confession and catechisms, but is somewhere contained inside them. Um, and one subscribes to the system, but not to the whole confession and catechisms. And may I interject, is the subscriber in that case able to at will opt in and out of which particulars, or does he have to give an account of that to a, to a body of examples? He certainly has to give an account of where he thinks uh, his differences with the, with the standards lie, but the expectations of the, of the church would only be ever that he subscribed to the system. And so they are judging whether his differences really integral to or, or hostile to the system uh, right. The system understood as something less than contained somewhere in an ill-defined way within the confession and catechisms. Then good faith subscription is, is something of a via media between the two. It was an attempt by the PCA to say, yes, we want to allow candidates to take, uh, to, to declare their stated differences. We want to empower presbyteries to judge and evaluate those differences. And we've developed a sort of a, a set of criteria um, that allow us to weigh what, what, we, what we make of those differences. So, so a difference may be judged to be merely semantic. So you're actually affirming everything that the confession and catechism say, but you would prefer it had said it in different language. But the thing that's being taught is, is wholly embraced. It's a semantic difference. Um, or it may be a, a substantial difference so it is, in fact, a real disagreement with something being taught. But the presbytery may say, yes, it's a substantial difference, but it is not hostile to the system and it does not strike at the vitals of religion. It is a, it's a minor point. It's a real difference, but it's a minor point. And so we'll grant you permission to hold that difference in good faith. And we assume that once you've stated all your differences and we've weighed them and judged them, we assume in good faith that you hold no other differences in every other point you agree with the confession and catechisms. Um, and then the, the third bucket, if you like, into which we can put a difference is to say, yes, it's a substantial difference and it does strike at the vitals of religion and is hostile to the system. And therefore uh, we will not allow you to minister within our, within the bounds of our presbytery as a, teaching or ruling elder um, in a local church or in a presbytery, as the case may be. Um, and that's, that's been a wise and, and, and reasonable system. Uh, the, the challenge comes when the question is asked about what can presbyteries do? What is the range and limit of their power here? Our presbyteries, if a presbytery grants a man a, a difference, a, a, an exception, that it judges to be more than semantic, um, 
therefore substantial, but it is not hostile to the system of doctrine and does not strike at the vitals. If he grants that exception, may the presbytery then require uh, that man not to teach his difference. The presbytery may judge, for example, for prudential reasons, there had perhaps there's been controversy within their bounds and division over some doctrinal matter. And a man comes into the presbytery and takes a position that is um, allied with one side or the other in a recent uh, controversy within the presbytery. And while the presbytery believes that this man is not a, a divisive person and that the point in question in itself may not be hostile to the Reformed faith overall, and uh, they may nevertheless decide for prudential reasons that, yes, we'll grant this man this difference. We want his ministry amongst us. We trust him. But given our recent history, we don't want this to be taught or propagated here. Or they may feel that it is a significant enough issue. Lord's Day, Sabbath views, for example, might be something they would feel rise to a level of significance such that they don't want that difference with our standards, our public stated position uh, to be undermined by a view that is contrary to them being advanced and, and more people won to that opinion. In my judgment, it really belongs to the heart of what presbyters, pastors, preachers, teachers, elders should be doing. They should be ensuring that all the teaching within their bounds conforms, does not contradict, does not undermine the, the public standards of the church that say, as, the, as a denomination, as a church, this is what we believe and teach. And, and that's, that's a position that is somewhat controversial in the PCA, at least. There are many out there who feel that if a difference has been granted by the presbytery, they should be free to teach and advocate for that difference freely. And I, I uh, depending on the nature of the difference, but I think presbytery needs to have the right to say, uh, not within our bounds. David, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. So I wanted to just take a big step back and, and ask a question this way. Although I think in your earlier answers, you've already addressed this, but maybe just crystallizing what you've already said. Um, for, for many of our listeners who are not in a tradition or not in a congregation that is confessional in the, in the, in the ways that we've been describing, how, how would you summarize the, the, the value of that, the importance for that in, in terms of the health of the church and even, even the health of families within the church, individual Christians within the church? Yeah. In other words, why why should Christians embrace confessional uh, churches and 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 making a public confession of their faith? That's great. Well, first of all, because it's biblical. The Bible actually teaches us to state again what its message is in a coherent and consistent manner. And uh, you know, Paul writes to Timothy about the pattern of sound words to which Timothy's teaching must conform. Uh, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, note the definite article, there's a body of doctrine um, that can be termed the faith that can be expressed and summarized to which all teaching should conform. The heretics use the Bible too. 
And so the question isn't, do you believe the Bible is the final authority? But what does the Bible say and what does it mean? And uh, in answer to that question, it's very valuable to have clear statements of Christian truth that elders together have committed to and believed um, not just in the moment, but across generations and have found to be serviceable for the needs of the church now for hundreds of years. So it's, it's biblical, it's practical and useful. We want to be able to answer the challenges of, of error. And we've said earlier that uh, many of the heresies and, and challenges confronting the church are not new. They're just versions of the same old and our confessions address them admirably. Um, and also for families, you know, um, catechizing is a, is a lost art. Teaching our children the truth of God's word is something the scriptures regularly exhort us to. And providing them with short, memorable, clear, theologically rich statements of truth that they may not actually entirely understand when you're teaching it to them becomes really valuable. So let me tell you a quick story and then, then I'll stop. My father-in-law, who is an elder in the Free Church of Scotland, uh, a Presbyterian denomination in my homeland, um, was taught as a young man the shorter catechism and resented it terribly. It was drilled into him. <laughs> And he was a worldly man, an unconverted man. But when, as an adult, the Lord arrested him and brought him to Christ, he had lying dormant in his mind all these rich statements of Christian truth that suddenly provided him with tools to understand the scriptures to, to know when he's listening to preaching what's right and what's not, what's inbounds and what's out of bounds, to be able to express to other people what he believes about who is Jesus, why did he come, what does it mean to follow him. Um, suddenly, he had, he had categories that were just waiting for him, waiting for the lights to go on. There was all this furniture in the room. And then when the lights went on, he saw how well furnished it was and I uh, was able to use it. It, it. it was, to me, that's a great uh, commendation of catechisms and, and confessions of faith. Stock, stock your minds with these truths. They, they will not let you down. They've been tr proven, they're tried and tested and uh, incredibly valuable. And uh, why would you want to reinvent the wheel? What makes you think that your individual attempts to formulate Christian truth are superior um, to uh, the, the products of, of the Christian centuries, which is summarized for us in our creeds and confessions. If, if it's never been said before, it's probably not right. Uh, here's one way you can check. Amen to that. <laughs> well, David, thank you for your time with us today. And, and thank you again. I've said this to you off the air, but thank you again for your address, uh, which 
which as I, as I said, both James and I found very useful and we'll, we're trying to disseminate as widely as we possibly can. I appreciate that. Thank you, brothers. Uh, Jonathan, you and I have both taught undergraduate students for uh, many years and, and, and grad students as well. And uh, one, one thing that uh, David said toward the end there uh, about really furnishing the mind with truth, even if, even if you don't know where it fits, even if it's just furniture in a dark room because you're not converted and you don't love these things. I was thinking of this in terms of students that we've had who have been catechized uh, before they ever came to study theology in a university or in a grad school. And just the way that that uh, has situated them and enabled them to navigate the theological and biblical landscape with a kind of skill and an insight uh, that gives them just a, a unique advantage, not to say that the catechized students always get the best grades uh, in, in college or seminary, uh, but that it just enables them to engage the contemplation upon scripture or on theological doctrines uh, in, a, in a really rich and rewarding way. Well, there's no question. Um, no, and we have talked about that before. It, it, it's sort of obvious uh, which students are familiar. And that doesn't mean that, you know, you can start at any age, of course. And, and right. but, but for parents out there, it's important to teach your children these things. And, and I, I, I too found his imagery uh, really uh you know, arresting. I would say one other thing, which we've also talked about, and that is this, that, that the older language, and we were talking in, in this interview about the Westminster standards and uh, in particular, but the older language, the deeper you go in your study of theology or even of church history, the more you realize they had a facility with the language and an understanding of the underlying concepts that really is sorely lacking in most contemporary theological writing. How many theology books do you pick up today and you realize within 10 pages, you know, there's probably some good things in here, but there's just a lack of familiarity with what Christians have said for thousands of years. No, that's right. And I, I think the thing with the confessions and catechisms, particularly with regard to the matter of arcane language, is... I guess what I'd want to say to our listeners is um, be patient because that language actually bears a conceptual richness. It takes some, I think what Luther would have called church sweat. Uh, it takes some effort to fight your way into that language. But what you'll find is that that language isn't just old fashioned sounding. It's actually a, a language better suited to the concepts that as Christians, we need to hold on to. Uh, in perpetuity, just because they're true, uh, and I would, and I, as a sort of a commendation of that, I think we we easily say, "Oh, that's going to take some effort." I don't know what those words mean or what that terminology refers to, um, but with some effort, you and I have both experienced this ourselves. We have had to fight our way into that that language, but once once you gain a familiarity with it, you don't want to let it go. Not just because you're a uh, a sentimentalist about the past. Uh, you don't want to let it go because you realize that that language is uniquely suited to convey a richness of concept that maybe uh, more newfangled terms uh, just aren't equipped to do. Right. It, it, it is uniquely capable of conveying what the Bible teaches. 
um, right. in, in all of its, in all of its richness and complexity. So, well, in any case, we would, we will have a link on the theology on the go page to pastor strains address. And for those of you who are listening, who, um, are interested in learning more, you can, you can click on that. Uh, we are always grateful for um, you listeners, and we love to hear from you. And so please feel free to send along your comments and thoughts. If you're able to donate, you can do that at alliancenet.org or placefortruth.org. And thank you, as always, for listening to Theology on the Go, a brief interview about an eternal truth. Western Reformed Seminary is a Bible-believing Presbyterian seminary in the great Pacific Northwest. Their mission is to prepare church leaders who are spiritually grounded, knowledgeable, capable, and dedicated through solid theological training. Academic degrees such as Masters of Biblical or Theological Studies, as well as the Masters of Christian Ministry, with emphasis in Biblical Counseling, Missions, or Church Ministry. Along with degree programs, students may take a class as a standalone for credit or audit. Although residency classes offer the best learning environment, Western Reform Seminary offers interactive, synchronous classes for students unable to attend in person, as well as concentrated classes in January and May every year. For more information, visit wrs.edu or email registrar at wrs.edu. Western Reformed Seminary.